Good evening, church. If you will open your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 23, that's where we will be spending our time this evening, 1 Samuel 23. You know, we just sung about the fact that there were, there's coming a day where there will be no trouble, and there will be peace in the valley, but that day is not yet here, and it was not here for David, as we will see tonight. Thank you for leading us in song. See if you can follow along with this train of thought. There is a difference in saying that you depend on the Lord and actually depending on the Lord. Is there not? This weekend, Haley and I had the chance to go visit Bays Mountain. It's the first time we've been. We got to go by ourselves, and we hiked. We did the hike up to the fire tower. I don't know if it's... Perhaps you've been there. It's, it's probably 100 feet tall. It's big, tall, maybe, I don't know, 80. It's tall. And you get there, and there's all these warning signs. You know, the dramatic warning signs that say, you are permitted to climb this, but you absolutely must do it at your own risk because uh, it's, it's incredibly dangerous. So, what do you think I did? All right. I got, it's, and if, if you've seen the tower, if you've seen a fire tower before, this one was built in, 1930, in the 1930s. And it's, a, it's a, like a metal, almost a wire structure because it's got this very thin structure. And the steps are wooden steps. Untreated lumber that have been there maybe since 1930. Probably not. But they were in ill repair. It's a rusted, wobbly metal structure. When I grabbed a hold of the first bottom rung, the whole thing shook. So my wife left. She walked, she walked off somewhere else. And, uh, and it was incredibly steep. So I climbed it. And the whole way up, I will admit, I'm not ashamed, I was very nervous. Maybe not very nervous. I was nervous. Okay, uh, And I climbed very slowly, and it was one of those things, perhaps you know what I'm talking about, where I was definitely holding on with two hands, but I was like holding my whole body with my hands, you know, like, because every step, there were some that if you put your weight on them, they were, they were going to fall. There's no question about it. Uh, they had not been replaced. And so it was one of those things where I climbed up very slowly, like maybe 50 or 60 or 70% of my weight was on my feet and the rest was like my upper body I was holding. And I kept getting taller and taller and I was, you know, I was hedging my bets in in case I stepped through one of the steps. As I got closer to the top, I'm like, huh, I can see. All right, my wife can't see me. I could turn around here. It's not a big deal. I was like, oh, come on, Nathan. Right? I didn't know I was going to tell this story in church a few days later. Uh, I'm glad that I did. But, I mean, I really thought I was going to go back down. And I can at least say my heart was racing. And I got up to the top and everything was fine. And I went back down a little bit quicker. But, you know, there's a number of different ways to approach climbing a tower like that. One option is Haley's option, which is probably a wise option. She did not climb it. She did not even watch me climb it. I was like, hey! And she's like, hey! (laughs) If you had asked Haley, I mean, Haley, do you think those stairs will hold you? She probably seems like, yeah, probably, but there's like no reason for me to do this, right? Within an hour, we, we put up a hammock off in the woods and did some reading together and stuff. But within an hour, there's some other folks that came up, and there's a teenager. And what do you think he did? He just scurried right up the stairs like there's, like there's nothing, nothing at all to, to fear. So there's three different ways to approach the tower. Let me ask you this. Who do you think demonstrated the most confidence in that tower? 
Haley, who professed confidence but chose to abstain. Me, who tentatively and anxiously crept up with my heart racing. Or, number three, that crazy teenager who just flew up the stairs and came back down within, you know, 60 seconds. You see, each of these responses illustrates the different way that we can put our trust in the Lord when we're in trouble. Do you know what I mean? I think most of us, or at least some of us, probably many of us here as believers, we would say we trust him, but then we don't act on everything he says, right? Otherwise, you'd never be anxious, you'd never sin, you'd never be afraid. I would say that very few of us, perhaps even none of us, really trust him like a child with no reservations, who, who recklessly trust him. Most of us are somewhere in the middle. We trust him and we act on him sometimes, but with lots of reservations. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we do. Sometimes only if we have to, if it's a last resort. I can imagine if a bear came, my wife would trust those stairs, right? Even though the bear's probably a problem there anyway, right? But, but either, if we're really honest, we would say, and we've got to be really honest to say this, that deep down, you and I have decided how much we can really trust God. Can, I mean, can we talk here for a second? You, you, know, you know what I'm saying. Right? We all say we trust him. But we've decided how much we can really trust him. Like how much weight we can really put on him. We've all experienced what seemed to be unanswered prayers. We've all had times that we went to the Bible for help and we didn't seem to get any. We've all had times, I imagine, where it seems like God didn't give us what we needed or wanted. Sometimes God doesn't save the marriage. Sometimes the wayward child doesn't come home. Sometimes you go to God for help or comfort or satisfaction and you leave still feeling empty. Now we would all say that we trust God with a capital T, but functionally we trust him in varying degrees. And like Peter, it kind of depends on the circumstances, right? It's one thing to say that you trust God to save you from hell. It's another thing to trust God so much that you're willing to be thrown into a fiery furnace. You see what I mean? Functionally, we put, all of our, we put our weight on God in varying degrees, depending on the situation and depending on our faith. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. Can I ask you this question? Can God hold you up? I mean, is he trustworthy? Not only to save your soul, which he certainly is, praise God, but also to help you in the midst of trouble. Is the God who is able and willing to save you from an eternity in hell, is he also able and willing to help you in your family mess or in your mundane job? Can he hold you up while you watch your mother die of cancer? Can he hold you up or do you need food or drugs or Netflix or exercise or whatever your thing is? It's one thing to say you trust God. It's another thing to actually put your weight on him when trouble comes. In our text tonight, David is in trouble. And his faith, we've seen, has varied some, right? We, we all understand that the Christian life is not just a like straight shot to glory. It's more, it's these ups and downs, frustratingly so. 
And we're seeing the ups and downs in David. David is still learning how much he can trust the Lord. David is God's anointed. He is God's man, yet he is still being chased by a murderous, probably demonic madman. And if you think about it, church, God could have stopped it, and he didn't. I imagine David prayed about it. In fact, we actually have some psalms where he prayed about it. God didn't stop it. He kept letting him be chased. David's trial drug on for weeks, months, years. It was not enough for David to put radical faith in God once. Remember that tall guy, right? Not enough to do it one time. That's not the Christian life. God put him in situations to do it over and over and over again. It's one thing to trust God in the big dramatic day of glory. It's another thing to trust God when no one is watching and you're exhausted and discouraged. It's almost as if God is more concerned that David learns to trust him than he is keeping David out of trouble. Could he be doing the same thing in your life? As I said, Psalm 54, which we read at the beginning, is a psalm that David wrote in this circumstance, during the events of this chapter. So it's clear that David is learning the lesson. Psalm 54, verse 4, David says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. I'm sure that we would admit to agreeing with that statement. God is my helper. God is the upholder of my life. But can we really say it with conviction? The Lord is my helper. So much so that you don't sin when you're tempted. This text is given to you and me to build our faith tonight. So that we would be willing to put all of our full weight upon him. And so that brings us to the main idea tonight. That no matter how dark the circumstances are, the Lord is a helper for those who trust in him. But his help often does not come in the way you would expect. Sounds similar to many things we've been learning week after week. Tonight I'd like to draw your attention to three resources that this text reveals that God makes available to his people in times of trouble. Three resources. But first, we must read the text. Chapter 23, I'm going to summarize verses 19 to 24, but let's start in verse 1. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kaliah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Kaliah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Kaliah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Kaliah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Kaliah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Kaliah. Verse 6. When Abathar the son of Ahimelech had fled to David to Kaliah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. That's an important verse. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Kaliah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Kaliah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. 
And David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Kaliah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Kaliah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, You will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Kaliah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Kaliah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Kaliah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country, the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. In verses 19 through 24, we simply read of how the Ziphites, which is where David was hiding, contacted Saul to tell him that David was hiding near them. Certainly understandable, considering that Saul had just butchered an entire village for giving aid to David. Let's pick up in verse, uh, halfway through verse 24. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired word given to us for our instruction and our warning and our encouragement. So, Father, would you do all those things tonight? I pray that you would help me, your servant, to serve your people. But, Father, only your spirit can accomplish what we intend. So I pray, Father, let my words fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. Let only your word remain in our hearts. And then let that bring fruit to the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. As I said before, I would like to draw your attention to three ways that God provides help for us in times of trouble. The first is this. He speaks. God speaks to us in times of trouble, verses 1 through 14. There are several interesting things to note about this first portion of the text. Of course, I can't walk through all of it. We have quite a lot to cover. But as we've already said, David and his ragtag band of soldiers are still on the run from Saul and his murderous henchmen. And they're not messing around. Saul is a terror that we could rightly compare to Hitler or Stalin. He wiped out an entire city, butchered them, including children, chapter 22, just for crossing him. So 
So I think that in 23, we can understand that this is probably happening at the very same time that Saul's massacring the priests in Nob. It's probably concurrent. But there's a fascinating contrast here that we should take note of. Remember, all throughout the book of Samuel, we're seeing the author specifically and inspired by God contrast David and Saul, right? We've seen that many times, and that is here again. While Saul, the king of Israel, is murdering his own people, David, who is running from Saul, is saving them. Do you see that? David is on the run, and he's being betrayed by the people who save him. That sounds familiar. And yet he is still willing to serve them. We're actually seeing David function as a new kind of king. The kind of king that Israel had never seen before. The kind of king that the world so rarely sees. A king that actually cares for his people more than his own well-being. We have a king like that, do we not? The people at Kaliah, which was about eight miles away, were being attacked by the Philistines, which was common, and they were stealing their food, right? So David asked the Lord if he should go rescue them, and the Lord says yes, but his soldiers, understandably, are not so sure, right? So David asked the Lord again, and he says yes again. Imagine that. So they go, and the Lord uses David as the savior of the people of Israel. We're seeing David function as a savior. But there's another scene to take note of, but we first need to notice verse 6. Verse 6 seems to be kind of awkwardly placed in the text, especially if you're paying attention to the structure. But it's a key to helping us understand, I think, the main idea of this text. Look at verse 6. When Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David and to Keliah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. It's a text that simply reminds us of what we learned in the last chapter, that Abathar was the only priest who survived Saul's massacre. And now he's with David, and he has a piece of clothing in his hand, an apron, right? Why is this important? Why? we got to understand how important this is. Perhaps you'll remember that the ephod is an important part of the priest's uniform. It's something of a sacred apron. Perhaps you remember of uh, Urim and Thummim, which were, <laughs> we're still trying to figure out what this means, but it was a part of the priest's garment that God had given to his people to know the will of God, right? They would simply ask God a yes or no question, and using this cloth, they would be able to understand. If you want to read more about that, you can read Exodus 28. But the key thing for us to remember here is that the king of Israel is supposed to rule Israel by God's word. It's very different than the kings like the nations. So this is how God was going to give his word to his king. So David asks two yes or no questions. Is Saul going to come here and get me? Yes. Are the people here going to give me up? God says, yes. So, Based on God's revealed word, David and his men act. They scatter. And so when Saul hears of this, he gives up the chase for the time being. And then the text makes it clear to us in verse 14 that even though he gave up for a time, he still sought him every day. But God did not give David into his hand. Okay. 
What do we make of this? First of all, where can I get one of these direct lines to God, right? You want one of those? It's like the divine magic eight ball, right? Should I go to such and such college, right? What do we make of this? A couple things. Let's start here. God blesses those who seek his guidance. God blesses those who turn to him for guidance. We must first note that in the midst of trouble, David turned to the Lord. This is a new skill for our young king. If you remember, sometimes he has not done this. Sometimes he has. But now he has sought the Lord. And he has sought the Lord through the means that God made available to him. God gave David a priest with an ephod. Both of which demonstrated that the Lord's favor was on David, not on Saul. David did not resort to his own reasoning, like he did a few chapters ago, like his men did, but he turned to the Lord. The Bible explicitly warns us that we are unwise when we put our full weight in our own understanding. The Bible says, trust in the Lord with what, church? all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. That is, a, If you think about that, that is a very difficult thing to do. Do not lean on your own understanding. How do I even live? Right? Do you see the picture of dependence upon the Lord that we are called to? It's so easy for us to sit here and be like, oh yeah, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I like those verses. Yeah, trust in God. Now, that's why I want to encourage you to think about how do you actually function? How do you do this? David turned to the priest and the ephod to discern God's will. How much easier would life be if we could get one of these, right? Have you thought about it? I mean, how much easier would it be if I could just ask God yes or no questions? You might be tempted to think, I would trust him so much more, right? If I knew exactly how to respond to my wife in this exact moment, yes or no, I mean, it would be so much easier to do it, right? Careful. But I can say, God has not given us a priest and an ephod because we don't need it. We had something better. First of all, you and I are not God's chosen king. That might be news for some of you who think you're pretty slick. But you and I are not God's chosen king. David was central to God's plan in bringing about all of salvation for the entire world, right? More important than you. Can we agree? More important than me. It was crucial for David to have clear direction from the Lord. And David did not have the scriptures like we do. He probably had a copy of the law. So here's the clincher. Don't you and I have something better than a priest who died with an with a sacred piece of cloth? Don't we? I mean, it's not like we're left without a word from the Lord. Dare I say that we have something better than a yes or no hotline to God? We have a great high priest, not one who dies. We have a great high priest who is so much greater than Abathar, and through him, we have a direct line to the throne of grace. And do we not have a better word than yes or no? Has not God revealed so much to us? 
Think of all the scriptures that we have. Let's say that we had an ephod. Let's just say for a moment that you had one. Now, judging by how seriously you've taken the scriptures this week in your life, would you have even used it? Would we even bother to use it? God answered David with two yes or no questions. Yes and yes. Two words. If you have a copy of the ESV Bible, you have 757,000 words from God. That's more than two, right? I'm being crude here, but you understand what I'm saying, right? More than that, we have the spoken word, which reveals Jesus to us, the living word. And he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. In him, all of the promises of God are yes and amen. God blesses those who turn to him in times of trouble, and we turn to him by going to the channels that he has given us, the scriptures and prayer. What does God say to you in your trouble? How does God's word tell you to respond in your situation? I have the great joy of talking to people in the midst of great trouble, and I'm amazed at how often we forget to even look. I was talking with one person about a situation and I just went through and I read passage after passage after passage from the scriptures that related to her situation. And she looked at me and said, it sounds like that I can't do what I want. It sounds like that you, Nathan, are telling me I can't do what I want to do. And I'm like, you mean God? Is God's telling you that? Do you see? She hadn't bothered to look. How do you respond? How does God tell you to respond when your spouse is sinning against you? God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, but lights only work if you open them, if you turn them on. I see so many Christians, and I do this in my life to my shame, fretting about about what to do in our problems, seeking all sorts of worldly solutions, and don't bother to pour over the 757,000 words from God. I mean, have you even read them all? This is why I am convicted of the need for biblical counseling. Not fancy counseling, but speaking God's word to other Christians. Because I'm convinced that in the Bible, God has given to his people all that we need for matters of life and godliness. He's given us all that we need to know how to live faithfully in the midst of our problems. We can turn to him. But we also see that there's safety in the word of the Lord. David had access to the Lord, and this time he sought the Lord. And what happened? The Lord blessed him. The text reveals numerous ways that he enjoyed the blessing of God's word. And I'll just rapid fire go through these. First of all, he delivered him from the hand of the Philistines. Second of all, he blessed him materially. He got a lot of cows, right? God provides for our needs. David had been hungry a few chapters before. They didn't have bread. Now they got a bunch of cows. Beef is better than gluten. Just saying. (laughs) Thirdly, gluten is good too, right? Thirdly, God blessed David's leadership, right? When these men were united together under him, even though they had reservations, we see God establishing David's leadership. And these men would go on to be David's mighty men, some Rambo-type kind of guys, right? This is such a contrast to Saul. 
Saul has been abandoned by the Lord. He has no priest. He has Doeg, right, the wicked Edomite. He has no ephod. He has no guidance. And we've seen what monstrous results it's produced in his life. Saul was clearly leaning on his own strength and found himself doing things that were unimaginable to him when the Saul began. All because he leaned on his own understanding. Friends, I would encourage you and I'm praying that God would reveal to us ways that we're doing this in our life. We need each other for this and we'll get to that in a moment. All of this for Saul was because he failed to hear and obey the voice of the Lord. Friends, when you or I choose not to seek guidance from God, where do we get it? I mean, there's, there's, if you're not getting guidance from God, you have to get it from the world. And where do you think that comes from? James says that if you reject wisdom from above, all that's left is demonic wisdom. Now, we may give really well-intended, well-meaning advice, but if it's not from God, it's demonic. It's a very binary sort of thing. James 3, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. God graciously speaks to you in the midst of trouble. The question is, will we listen? Those who say with David, the Lord is my helper, will hang on to his every word. The Lord provides a second resource to us in our trouble. That is encouragement, verses 15 through 18. Verses 15 and 18 are a breath of fresh air in this text. They tell of another way that God helps us, since through the wise and loving counsel of a godly friend. Jonathan hears, it seems, somehow, of David's trouble, and he goes to him. Verse 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish, and look at these words, strengthened his hand in God. Is that not the most beautiful picture of friendship that you can imagine? David and Jonathan are accused by some of having a homosexual relationship. This text makes it clear what their relationship was like. These are brothers. These are spiritual brothers. Here we see Jonathan risking his own life just for a chance to encourage someone. And yet we often don't even pick up the phone. This was the man who was going to take over his kingdom. And as we've seen in recent weeks, that there are many ways that Jonathan parallels Christ and the way that he stepped aside. But I would like to suggest tonight and focus for a few moments that what we have here can be a simple model for Christian ministry. Could I even say a counseling ministry? I'd like for you to notice two things about how Jonathan cared for David. The first is this. Jonathan took the initiative. Jonathan took the initiative. He went to David in times of trouble. So often we're like, well, they didn't ask for help, right? Say, hey, call me if you need anything. If there's anything I can do, let me know, right? That's, that's not initiative. That's like, 
this is your problem, right? If you need me, you figure out how to get help, right? So often we fail at this first point. We don't take the initiative. We are so consumed with our own lives that we don't bother with the problems of others. If Jonathan was astute enough to pick up on David's needs without Facebook and without text messaging from a distance, then I bet that Jonathan would have noticed when people disappear from his Sunday school class. I bet Jonathan would have noticed if someone sat quiet or seemed downcast. I bet Jonathan would have been able to ask meaningful questions to really figure out how someone is doing. Jonathan didn't care about meddling. He didn't wait for a convenient time. He didn't wait until David asked for help. And Jonathan didn't call a priest. This is my favorite. He didn't call a professional certified spiritual helper guy. Jonathan took the initiative. He went and he offered spiritual care to a friend who is in trouble. Should we not do the same? But we have to be alert. We have to be available to even notice the spiritual needs of others. Why is it that so often when we see our brothers and sisters hurting, that we back away? Why is it that when we see marriages falling apart, we just kind of stay quiet? We're afraid to get caught up in it. Why is it that when we see people engaging in destructive, sinful patterns of behavior, that we don't speak? All of a sudden, we don't want to meddle, even though we might, you know, do some of that with somewhere else. Could it be that we simply just don't know what to do? You've been there before? I've been there. I'm there all the time. Could it be that we just don't know what to say? It can be so scary to try to help someone. But fortunately, Jonathan gives us an example on this front as well. Jonathan models for us how we can be wise, encouraging, counseling agents of grace with no training at all. Jonathan gives us an example of how to be biblical counselors. Look what he did. Jonathan pointed David to God. You see? He pointed him to God. Verse 17. And Jonathan said to David, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. All right, we could spend a lot of time on this. But don't be tempted to think that Jonathan just came in and said, Everything will be okay. It could seem like that, right? Don't worry, Saul's not going to get you. Don't worry, she's going to get better. Don't worry, the money's going to come in. You don't know any of that stuff, right? Jonathan, Jonathan doesn't know the future. What he does know is what God has promised. Technically, this, what Jonathan is saying is he did one crucial, gracious, wise thing. He reminded David of the promises of God. That's how you help. He reminded David of the promises of God. He went to David in his struggle. He couldn't fix it, right? So often we're afraid to help people because we feel like we have to fix their marriage or fix their finances or fix their emotions, right? You can't do that. That's Holy Spirit stuff, right? You can't do that. We speak truth. That's what we are called to do. And that's what Jonathan did. He did the best thing a friend could ever do. He strengthened David's hand by pointing him to God. He reminded David of the promises of God. So often we are just like 
You remember, David, God had promised David, you're the king, right? So all of Jonathan's inferences were very legitimate. David can't be king if he's dead, right? So he's given some commentary on the situation, but he's, all he's doing is applying the promise. He's looking at a promise, and then he's applying it to his situation, which David needed, right? And it strengthened his hand. So often we're like David. We have these incredible promises from God, but then our circumstances come upon us and it seems like that they're never going to come to pass. We need someone to come to us when our faith is weak and to call us, throw your full weight on God. He can handle it. We need friends like that. We need someone to say, hey, yes, your situation is very bad. And brother, I wish I could fix it, but I can't do that. But let me remind you, God's word has not changed. You can still trust him and you can still obey him in your situation. You see, you and I don't have the same promise that David had. God has not promised to preserve your life. Don't tell people that they're going to get better. You don't know that. God has not promised to give you all the finances that you need, you think you need. Don't give bad counsel. God has not promised to make you a king. But he has promised that he has adopted you. And he has promised that he'll never leave you or forsake you. He has promised that there's no situation that you could ever face that is scary enough to give you a legitimate reason to fear. He's promised that even though you will suffer, he's working in every situation to bring good to you and glory to his name. Do you see what Jonathan did? He didn't give empty promises. He didn't pile up some secular psychology. He didn't tell him to believe in himself. He just pointed him to God. He kind of said, don't believe in yourself. Believe in God. Look to him and the Lord's resources. Brothers and sisters, God has called you, not just pastors and not professional counselors and not just extroverts and not just people who are good with words. He has called you to be like Jonathan and to go to other people and strengthen their hand in the Lord. And it's at this point that we should also consider once again that Jonathan is being like Jesus. He's pointing us to Jesus. Just like Jonathan, Jesus gave up his riches to enter into our poverty and our suffering. Just like Jonathan, Jesus came to the front. He looked on our plight and he had pity on us. Except we're sinners who because of our sin, we sit in the shadow of darkness but Jesus is better than Jonathan. He went further than Jonathan did. He condescended. He became man and he suffered a death he should not have even seen and died for our sins. For all the times that I have failed to love others. For all the times that you have ignored his word. For all the times that you've trusted in your ability to fix it rather than his. Jesus has proven that he is the ultimate example of a friend. And he laid his life down for us, his friends. And if you turn to him, you will find that even now, he is able to sympathize with your weaknesses. He is able to give grace to you. Remember James, mega grace, much grace. He's able to give grace to you 
in your time of need. So brothers and sisters, be Jesus to hurting people. And then turn to him in your time of trouble. One final way, one final resource that we see is made available to us. And I'll have to keep this short. Is in verses 19 through 29, we see that God works for us in our trouble. He's providential. He has a strong hand. The word hand appears a lot in this text. And the word hand is always referring to power, right? God's got lots of it. Verses 19 through 29 describe more of David's trouble. Jonathan came, he counseled, he left. David's situation got worse. First of all, the Ziphites, besides their unfortunate name, betrayed him in verses 19 through 24. And then in verses 24 through 29, it reads like a great chase scene. Verse 25, David hears that Saul's coming after him in Arabah, so he flees. Immediately in verse 26, David hides in a new rock. Saul chases him there too. In verse 26, we see that Saul gets so close that David is on one side of the mountain with his men and Saul is on the other side of the mountain with his men. I mean, it's about to end for David. This is the end. This is the day when God's promises are going to fail. He may have been tempted to think. But what happens? Saul's messenger comes and tells Saul that, Oh, the Philistines are attacking the homeland. Who do you think sent the Philistines? Saul's forced to give up the pursuit. And so David escapes again. And the rock in Maon becomes the rock of escape. So many things we could say here, and I'll have to leave many of them to you to apply yourself. But let me ask you this. Why do you think the Lord let Saul get so close? Why? I mean, couldn't he have sent the Philistines like a day earlier? Like, why, like, why is David running for his life when he can like almost literally hear Saul and his men? Why not send the Philistines sooner? Why wait until the very last second to save David? Is God toying with him? Does God like seeing his servants suffer? Or could it be that God is using trouble to strengthen David's faith? Could it be that God is more concerned with teaching David that he can be trusted even when all hope seems lost? Brothers and sisters, we must never forget that the Lord is our helper. That he is our salvation. And if he gave up his son for you, is he not going to help you in your problems? And is he not going to change you? But of course we see that his help and salvation come in ways that we do not expect. One of my favorite commentators, um, William Blakey, he put it like this. Oops, I didn't finish the quote on here. I didn't finish the sermon on here. Whoops. He said this, I'll have to summarize part of it. If it be God's purpose to deliver you, then he has thousands of unseen options that are available at his hand. What can the Lord not do for you? And does he not love you? Are you not convinced, brother and sister, that if he died for you while you were his enemy, that he's not going to be near to you while you were his friend? As Proverbs says, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Let us be that friend for others, but let us look to Jesus to be that friend for us.
Let's pray. Father, we corporately and together confess before you that we so often do not trust you. We'll trust you with the big things or we'll trust you when there's nothing else we can do as a last resort. We'll trust you when we don't have any other resources. But Father, would you please teach us to trust you in all situations. That we would say with confidence that no matter what sort of circumstances you lovingly and graciously and wisely permit in our life, that you are our helper. That you've saved us and you're changing us and you're preparing us to inherit the kingdom. Teach us to be like David. Use our trials, use our difficulties that we might trust in you. Forgive us where we fail and help us to look to Jesus who provides mercy for all of our failures and we will give him glory for it. We ask these things in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.